Hey guys, Merry Christmas. I am picking up a little bit where I left off a little over a week ago in the last podcast. I'm gonna explain that, but this one's a little bit longer, but I invite you to hang in there and listen through because I go over so much information. I think it'll be really compelling. Let's check it out. This is the Gaining My Perspective podcast, and you're hanging here with me, Wendy Cunningham. You're here to get empowered, inspired, informed, and encouraged as we navigate the everyday journey of this crazy life. Stick around because we're going to laugh and we're going to learn. And above all else, we're going to gain perspective. Hey guys, welcome back to Gaining My Perspective podcast. Welcome those of you watching on YouTube. Hello, and thank you to my loyal listeners on all the podcast platforms. It has taken me a minute to get around to this because of the crazy time of year that we are in. Gosh, I sure love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas, but there's a lot that goes into Christmas in terms of decorating and all of the activities that go along with this time of year and being a homeschool mom, as you know, there's just so many things I want to do. And yet I still have to do school and try to figure all this out. And uh, so it's been hard to come back here. Also, I had sadly a little bout of some vertigo and stuff this past week. So any prayers you want to send my way, I am feeling a little bit better, but I'm glad to return to this conversation because this is a little bit of picking up where we last left off. So if you um, if you missed the most recent podcast about how the enemy is using atheism, of course, this is always my opinion, uh, go check that out because the, I'm kind of tagging on to that and, and growing that idea and expanding into the fact that, um, or I guess let's say I'm I'm going down the road of explaining how I came from atheism over to a believer in Christianity, a little bit more nuts and boltsy, like a little bit more in the weeds about how did I do that? How did I navigate that? Why? Because, um, you know, Although there are lots of converts who did not come, you know, grow up as believers or grow up in the church and are now, of course, Christian. Um, But of course, there's lots of Christians who have left the church and have gone to, uh, you know, atheism or what have you, any number of things, um, which is so sad. But I wanted to just walk through my journey a little bit and, and again, go into some of the philosophical things Um, or even some of the specific things that were super compelling to me and and things that I had to chew on. And I also want to say that my journey was not quick. Um, I think when Christians are talking to non-believers, there is this desire to, you know, plant the seed and see the harvest and like see the fruit come, you know, and, and fully bring someone all the way over to a conversion and so often that is not the case. We are just but a part, right, of the of the process of sharing the good news with, with people who are not believers. And even that phrase, the good news, I have to say, as a non-believer, a previous non-believer, the good news was not good <laughs> at the beginning. The good news was actually quite devastating in certain respects, given the fact that it it was a dividing line between myself if I did become a believer of Christ 
and the people I would be leaving behind on the other side of that dividing line. What did that mean for them? I couldn't rescue anybody else except myself. And even still now, of course, as a mother, that is a hard reality to, to wrestle with that my faith is not my children's. My salvation is not my children's. I cannot ensure that they get into heaven. And I would talk with my husband about this as I was navigating this. Um, you know, can't you just vouch for me in the end? Tell God I was a good person and he'll let me in and all that if heaven ends up being a thing, um, which of course is not how it works, right? So I just wanted to go through some of the big points. This is not at all an exhaustive list or an exhaustive journey, but just stuff to think about talking points for you. If you are a believer talking to a non-believer, if you're not a believer and you come across this and listen, just things to chew on, um, things to think about. But again, uh, sadly, there is not a PowerPoint or a list of bullet points that I could offer where there is no place for debate. Of course, there is place for debate in the con in the discussion of God and his existence and faith. Of course, there is room for debate as there has to be, because if it was so compelling and blatantly obvious, which frankly, in my opinion, it is, then there would be no choice. You know, I was having this conversation. Um, oh, who was, who were we talking to? I can't even recall now who I was talking to about, oh, last night in my Bible study about how God does harden hearts and he does close eyes to the truth. That is something he does. We see that in Exodus with Pharaoh. We see that kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to cite some scripture here in a second, but he could soften everyone's heart. He could reveal without any doubt to everyone, but that would not require any faith, right? And this is how, as a Christian, I walk out my life. If, if I had, if I was coming to a precipice of a great decision in my life, like a just very important and catalytic decision in my life, let's say to quit a job or change careers or whatever, Oftentimes, I have to choose to be obedient to what I feel God is calling me to do without knowing what I'm going to transition into, if that makes sense. So I don't get to have like, God says, I want you to quit this job. And then a month after you quit, I'm going to have somebody call you a headhunter. And then you're going to get hired over here. Like God doesn't, he never gives you the full picture because if you had the full picture, you wouldn't need faith. You wouldn't need to lean on him and depend on him in order to be obedient. It would be easy to be obedient, right? So even though the very last book of the Bible is called Revelation, because I do believe that God does reveal himself very completely to each individual up into up to and including to the very end of time, he is going to reveal himself enough to each individual person so that they can be certain. But um, I totally understand where people feel that this is a place for great debate. And um, sadly, on both sides, and I am not um, excusing myself or saying that I'm perfect in this area, but plenty of arrogance, plenty of overconfidence in this area where everybody is very sure they're right, or not everybody, because I, I won't say that's true. Those of us who feel confident we know the truth are confident we know the truth, right? 
And that might, I'm speaking, of course, of myself, but I'm also speaking of, of course, of someone who's very, very confident that God does not exist. They're also very confident that they know the truth, right? So there's going to be conflict as is human nature, as is, um, that's just going to happen, right? So again, this is not something, this is not meant to be a podcast that you can share with your non-believer friend and it will be open and shut and you'll be certain that at the end of it, they will believe in God. That's not the deal. But I'm going to start just with, if God is real, let me back up one more second. I believe now that I was able to find the truth of God and his existence because I truly desired to know what is true more than I desired to be correct, if that makes sense. So when I was arguing with my husband, who was a believer, and he knew that God was real, and I knew that God was not real, we had some heated conversations, as you can imagine, but more than wanting to prove myself right and argue myself right, I wanted to know what was true. And I was willing somewhere, maybe subconsciously, I'll be honest, I was humble enough to go, I mean, I don't have every answer. I'm still curious about a lot of things. And perhaps I am wrong. Just because I think I'm right does not mean I've found the truth. And I knew there was plenty that I had not you know, fully investigated and understood and all of that. And so I was always coming with a, a little bit of humility. Always I could have had more humility, but I did desire to know what was true. And my husband had so much um, hope in that because he believed then, and I believe now that there is one truth, 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 absolute truth by definition is not relative, subjective, changeable. There is one, it is absolute. Even to argue there is no absolute truth is to say that there is one, right? Um, so I, if I was on the pursuit to know what was true, then he felt confident I would find it if I was truly trying to discover what was true. So that's my heart and prayer as you listen to this is that you just allow for that possibility that you're wrong, that I'm wrong. I don't have every answer, that's for sure. But you don't either. None of us do. None of us will ever get to that place on this side of eternity. And we always have to keep that posture of humility. So let's suggest if God is real, and if the Bible is the word of God, you know, breathed by Holy Spirit through many authors over thousands of years, and I know that that is a large thing to say. If you are not a believer, that is a large thing statement to swallow. Let's just say God's real and this is his word and the Bible is accurate. Let's just jump off there. But there is some scripture that I find really interesting that I want to read. What does it say? Okay. And I want to skip here. Hold on. I'm going to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. I'm going to start there and I'm going to read just a little bit of a chunk here of scripture, starting in verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. Okay. Let's just start there. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. And there is a predestination. I am someone who believes that God is sovereign, which means he allows and authors absolutely every single thing. And he knows every single outcome of every single person's life and their choice 
to accept God or not. He knows each of our hearts to that extent. So we do know the Bible tells us, and I think there's just a sense given the fact that there are atheists that exist in the world, that there are people, if God is real, there are people who are not going to grab onto that truth. And they are in that sense headed for destruction because atheism is a thing, right? So again, we're operating currently from the premise that God is real. And the scripture tells us that the, the path to heaven is narrow, right? The gate is narrow. Um, highway to hell, these songs, right? There's, there's this, this, we know that not everyone is going to make it to heaven. Now, I believe that that is not because of a harsh heart of God. I personally believe that is because God will honor your choice to the very end. And if you study Revelation, those who are in rebellion to God in the end days know full well that the wrath they're experiencing is in fact coming from God. There's no longer a rejection of God's existence in the end times. There is an acknowledgement that this wrath is coming from God, but there still is a rejection and a rebellion against God. There is a, a, there will, there is a lack of surrendering. There is no obedience. There's still that rebellion and rejection of God. So even though there's an acknowledgement of God, there is still the choice that you do not have to submit to God at any point. You never, God will never make you do that. And I, I think that is fair and awesome and totally reasonable. So because of that, because he gives us the choice, there will be people that will reject it, right? So because there are people that are already headed for destruction, the message of the cross is going to be foolish to those people. So of course, when people say this is silly or, or are, are um, antagonistic to the things of God or antagonistic about the Bible or arrogant in your conversations with them, of course, it sounds ridiculous. And let's just not pretend that faith in Jesus Christ is absurd in the natural. I will fully admit, y'all, we do believe in a, an absurd thing. If you If you just boil it down, the fact that God became man in the form of a baby through a virgin birth and grew up and submitted himself on a cross, which then conquered death. I mean, when you say it, it sounds ridiculous. We have to give that to the other side. We have to say, yes, of course, it sounds ridiculous. The Bible says it will sound foolish to those who are headed for destruction. There are a lot of things in this world that sound absurd and foolish and yet are very true and factual, right? I mean, when I am explaining, let me just tell you, how you conceive a baby <laughs> to my children, which I try to, you know, that's always hard. How do you explain that? Let's say, let's, I'll do you one better. Although that is a funny one, trying to explain that. It sounds absurd and ridiculous and impossible and crazy and funny and awkward. And like, surely that's, the best way that it works, like goodness, the stock market, trying to understand the stock market or explain the intricacies of the stock market to somebody makes your brain hurt or the IRS and the tax code. It's absurd and ridiculous, right? There are so many things in the world that are super hard to grab a hold of or very confusing or very absurd or very strange. Or you could think, I'm sure there's a different or better way to have done that. It doesn't mean that those things aren't real or that they can't be explained or that they can't be understood. 
it's just hard at the beginning, at the onset of the information. So let's go back to the scripture. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, so now we're referencing back to the Old Testament. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. So God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through his human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Okay, let me say that again. Since God in his wisdom, creator God, we're assuming God is real, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. You cannot know the truth of God through simply human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching, preaching of the gospel to save those who will believe. Brilliant. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We're going to come back to that, how Christ is the proof of God. So hang on to that. We're in verse 25. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. This truly is the battle of God's wisdom and human wisdom, right? This is, this is where the arrogance comes from. So many of us just will not relent our own wisdom. And I am, I would like to say, wise enough to know that I will never know it all. I will always be short of knowing it all, no matter how much I study or learn. Even in the last two years, the amount of things I have come to understand about the world, about medicine, is more than I have learned in the previous 35 years before that. You know what I mean? Like, we just have to always be humble enough to know that human wisdom is always going to be limited. So I love these verses. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. Please hear this. God chose things the world considered foolish to shame those who think they are wise. This is, these are eternal um, consequences, right? These are eternal implications. The wisdom we think we have on this side of eternity is so limited. I mean, we cannot fathom. This is even in my short life on earth so far. The age of the earth has changed. Science has shifted. Medicine has changed. We are always evolving in, in our knowledge and our understanding of things. So for us to ever stand in confidence that we know everything, we can't. We can't do it. And God's saying this, right? He is using the things that the world would say is foolish to shame those who think they're wise. So good. Oh gosh, where did I lose myself? 
God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considered important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. This is a little Fauci, right? I am science. <laughs> God made Jesus to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Now we're in uh, chapter two. I'm going to just read a little bit further. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words. This is Paul speaking. I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever or persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust, not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. There's so much there, you guys, and I'm going to try to boil it down so quickly that God, the gospel is very plain. And when you say, like I boiled it down, God became man, came through into the human experience by the birth of a virgin uh, became, came into human existence as a baby, grew up, was crucified, and that conquered death, right? This is very plain. It is very plain. It sounds foolish, but it's very simple and plain. Now, there is an element of Holy Spirit that is part of the revelation process. And those of us who are blocked to the possibility of God having power, we will never gain access to the Holy Spirit's ability to reveal these things as true in us. Hopefully that makes sense to you because my faith is so tangibly real in a way that you could never tell me it's not because of the experiences I've had with Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, another element. Again, he says, I did this. I did it this way. I made it so plain, so simple, so easy to follow, even though the word is going, the world is going to tell you it is foolishness. I did this on purpose so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. He had to leave a place where Holy Spirit could act as part of the revelatory process for each individual so that your faith could become experiential and not just head knowledge. Are you with me? We can understand things and it never transfers into our heart. We have knowledge up here in our head that never comes into action in our life, right? I mean, I know things and still, still don't enact them in my actions, right? There's a separation between mind and heart. Love is so this way. We, we know we should feel X, Y, Z, but we feel in our heart something different. And there's this disconnect between the heart and the head sometimes. This is the same thing. We want to rely on our upstairs. We want to rely on our own understanding. And the Bible says, do not rely on your own understanding, right? Holy Spirit needs to do a part of this revelation. And that is, that is why not one single believer can ever convince a non-believer that God is real because Holy Spirit has to do that. Holy Spirit has to do that. And the non-believer has to have a softened heart in order to even receive that possibility, 
So we can do our part, but you have to recognize when you are a Christian, there is, there is soil that is fertile for a conversation. And there is soil that is not fertile for a conversation about God. There are hard, hardened hearts where people are just not open to understanding or knowing where you're coming from. They want to tell you that they're right and that you're foolish. The Bible tells us that was going to happen. God said, that's exactly, I did it this way on purpose. The people headed for destruction will think this is foolish. It's right here. So have confidence, Christians, that it's just because the world views it as foolish. Let me promise you, there are a million things that the world says is great that I'm like, that is the most ridiculous and absurd and foolish thing I could ever imagine. But the world's like, it's super great. You can choose whatever gender you want to be, right? As an example. So let's go back to Acts. I want to read just a little bit of this scripture too, to talk about the hardened heart part, because that is something that God does. He's going to allow you to harden your heart against him. He's not going to force you to be soft. He's not going to force you to understand. He certainly won't force Holy Spirit upon you to have the revelation that will make your faith go from head knowledge to heart knowledge, from, from information to experience, right? So I'm in Acts 28, verse 23. So a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. That's the deal. Some are persuaded. Some will not believe. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with the fi this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah, the prophet. Now we're quoting Isaiah. Go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and let them and let me heal them. He tells us uh, thousands of years ago, there will be people whose hearts are just hardened. And for that, they cannot see it. They cannot hear it. They'll hear you, but they will not hear you. They will see absolute miracles of God. I mean, when I look back to my life before I was a believer, I can now look back on things I saw or experienced and go, at the time, I did not see that as a miracle of God. I thought it, I saw it as a coincidence or a you know, that's weird or serendipitous or whatever. And now as a believer, I go, oh my gosh, how did I miss it? How did I miss the hand of God in my life in that situation? That was truly miraculous. That was miraculous. Well, I, my eyes were closed. My heart was hardened. I could not see it for what it was. And y'all know we are looking at a world right now where it is so very clearly right in front of us, what is happening and people cannot see it. We are talking about sudden death syndrome, right? SADS, sudden adult death syndrome. When did that start? Oh, I wonder what could possibly be a catalyst for that. And people are just like, absolutely not that. We're, it, a new medication on the scene could absolutely not be the cause. Like, it's the wildest thing. But the Bible told us, we were warned thousands of years ago. Hearts would be hardened. Eyes would be closed to see. And going again, a little bit further back. Uh, in Matthew 13, verse 11, he replied, this is Jesus speaking. 
you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. This is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, and here we repeat it again, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. They cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Jesus is saying, he would love for them to. His heart is that they would, but they will not. And at the beginning of that little part of scripture, this is so crazy to me. It says, if to those who will listen to my teaching, if you will truly have a heart to, to learn and understand approaching and humility, more understanding will be given. I can tell you, this is my entire walk with Christ. When I first started to open this Bible up, I was like, what am I even reading? This is the craziest. I do not understand this. And as I have walked with Christ for the last 11 years of my life, I can tell you more and more understanding has been given and I have an abundance of knowledge and more than that, an abundance of confidence in what I believe so that I don't have to feel a need to prove myself right anymore. It is okay. If you don't believe what I believe, that's totally fine. I understand why you don't. I understand why it sounds foolish. The Bible says it sounds foolish to those who don't believe. Of course it does. So I get it. I don't have to feel this like I'm going to enter into every debate until I prove myself right. I don't have, I don't need that. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. And I see that that's true also that people who have, you know, grown up in church or have studied the Bible at length, who had a certain amount of understanding or maybe a certain amount of faith or relationship with Jesus, even that is taken away. But the Bible says that will happen if you don't have a heart to understand, if you're not approaching in humility. So all that is operating from the premise that God is real and that the Bible is the word of God. <laughs> Let's just, I just wanted to put that out there and start there because that's where I'm operating from and I'm the host. So I get to start where I'm operating from, but let's go back to where I was not so very long ago, where I did not believe that God was real. And I did not believe that the Bible was the um, word of God or had any sort of authenticity in that space. Some of the just, I, I cannot unpack these things in a podcast, but I do want to present them, right? Uh, what would compel someone to believe if they are coming from the premise that God is not real and that the Bible is not a source of authority. How did I, cause that's where I was coming from. How did I get there? Now I can't unpack these fully, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. So one of my first stumbling blocks uh, that worked against God is that I did not believe in eternity because eternity is a mind bender. It's so hard to think about. N there is no beginning and no end. Like just, I mean, we can do it in math. Like, and a number that is infinite in math, for some reason, I'm like, yeah, it just has no end. Like it just goes on forever. But for some reason, an eternal God is so hard for anyone to wrap their head around, myself included at the beginning of this journey. 
And one of the simply stumbling, simple stumbling blocks was, I don't believe that there could have been um, a creator that was eternal, eternal. So I believed instead in more of a big bang theory approach to creation or where we all began, which I, I will say I have not because everything is a theory. It's called the big bang theory. And you could even say the creation theory. I'll go for you. I'll, I'll say that. Nothing can be proven beyond a shadow, shadow of doubt. Because again, if every, if anything could be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, then we would not need faith. To believe in a big bang or to believe in a creator God, both require faith because neither has been or can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay, let's just start there. What I kept bumping into with my rejection of eternity is that it was either a scenario where an eternal God created earth or some sort of something, a rock or a gas or matter or some sort of substance exploded and created everything. These are our two most common scenarios. And please message me and tell me other scenarios. Eternity still exists. Either God is eternal or the rock or the gas or the mass had to be eternal, right? Because it is scientific. We have to suspend every law of science to say that nothing creates something. No something cannot come from nothing. That is a law of the natural world. So which is more likely that some matter existed eternally or that a creator God existed eternally? When we're looking through the lens of everything we see around us, the fact that a blade of grass is already able to create food for itself, the fact that I, even to this day, science cannot start the heart of a baby embryo. We can remove an egg from a mom, we can fertilize and create an embryo, and we can insert the embryo in the uterus, and we can do all the perfect hormones, but we cannot start the heart. There is a spark of life that happens that is still yet understood and still yet to be understood entirely, if you're not a Christian, and still not able to be replicated or duplicated or artificially created because we would not have the infertility crisis we have. IVF would not be nearly um, as unsuccessful as it is if we could do that, right? So there are so many things that are just still so perfect and so crazy that do not scream in any way chaos to me. They scream creator. They scream author. Another great example is just a quick video that's out on the internet that is compelling to me. It's just a simple idea that if the, if you had a book, right? If you see a book, here's my book as an example. What if you're wrong by Wendy Cunningham? When I hold this, I go, okay, there's words, there's color, there's ink, there's pages, there's pictures, there's a binding, there's hard substance, there's bendy substance. I would never think that this just came together on its own. Like I see this and I go, oh, someone put this together. And the fact that there's order, that there's, it makes sense, tells me that somebody wrote this. These words didn't just fall on, on the page on their own and like, make sense. And even Darwin, you guys, the most compelling arguments um, for secularism or humanism lie in Darwinism, the evolution of the fittest and all of that survival of the fittest, excuse me. Even he said that if there was 
a mechanism that could not be uh, reduced down further than just very simplistic uh, mechanism of, of um, functionality, then his whole theory would fall apart because at the time when he was putting together his, his theory, DNA had not been discovered. So we really didn't know what is at the root of life. We, we don't know what is the, you know, DNA is known as the book of life, like the instruction manual for how you are you and an elephant is an elephant and a blade of grass makes food for itself. Like DNA is in every living thing and it is the instruction manual. And DNA takes like 14 different types of chemicals in order for it to be reacting and add to, to for in, in order for it to work, excuse me, for in order for it to function. And so it is irreducibly complex at that point. You cannot just have one chemical that then later on got a second chemical mechanism and, and you know, it evolved into DNA because DNA doesn't exist below a certain level of complexity. And that makes Darwinism by his own admission, his theory fall apart. So that was something that I just thought, you know what? I think honestly, it is more likely both require faith, both require me believing in eternity, either the Big Bang Theory or a creator God. It seems more likely when I look around at the world and the perfection that I see, I'm not talking about the fall of man and the, I'm not saying corruption of man is perfection. I'm saying perfection in nature, just the beauty and the the stars and the way that we're exactly, from, you know, at the right distance from the sun to be warm enough and yet not burn up and gravity and all of the rules of the natural laws <laughs> tell me that it's more likely that this came from a creator with a plan and less likely that it all just happened to all these perfect things just happened to fall into place. Again, this is my own musings and walking through. Then we have evolution, which is something I was taught in school. And for even coming into my Christian faith, I thought it could be both and that God is the creator, but he also used the mechanism of evolution to create what I now see and understand. But again, some of my rejection of the creation account is that God just made a man out of the dirt. Again, the world will say this is foolish, right? God made a man out of dirt and breathed life into his lungs. And then he made woman out of that man. We come, women come from the rib of Adam. Okay. That's one scenario. Is it more likely that that happened or is it more likely that every, cause I just struggled with the idea that every single human on earth comes from one man, every human that ever existed in the history of earth came from one man. That's crazy. That is crazy. That is crazy. But the alternative y'all is that not just every human on the face of earth, but that every living creature of any kind came from the same cell. That's the alternative belief. If we're going the route of evolution, that every elephant and butterfly and flower and human and zebra and alligator and bacteria, all of these things evolved from one single cell. It, that's extreme too and absurd and ridiculous. And again, neither is provable in, in the way that we want it to be provable, right? 
But I thought these are both ridiculous. It's not that the way of God is just foolish. When you dig in, this is why he said it's it's foolish so that to shame the wise, right? Because we get all on our high horse and say, we fully understand where everything came from and we could totally explain it to you. And then it's like, but there's holes there too. There's absurdities there too. We can't avoid the absurd when trying to explain what human perception is able of comprehending because we are limited in our perception and in our understanding. So that was another thing that I, I started to go, hmm, that's, both of these are crazy scenarios, which is more likely, okay? And then of course, as I talked about in my last podcast, why do bad things happen to good people? The simplest explanation, and this is something that can be really compellingly discussed in a lot of ways, but it's hard to do this in a broad sense because it feels like it lacks compassion and empathy when I say um, to someone who has walked through a really hard, challenging thing that there is purpose, even in challenging things. Now I can speak of my own challenging things that I've walked through and I have walked through very hard, very tragic, very um, self-deprecating. I mean, like very, very, very hard things. I don't say that lightly. And I can look back and see purpose in it. I can see lessons in it. I can see how I would never have become the person that I am today with the character that I have today. If I did not walk through that, I would not have the marriage I have today. I would not be the parent I am today if I did not walk through the hard things that are in my past. So I can I can use my own experience. But to a, a great perspective giving book to me was uh, A Stolen Life by J.C. Dugard. And again, it's all about perspective because God's perspective is different. The Bible says his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. We just have to assume that we are not the highest thought on the, in the universe, please. Can we, can we agree on that? A stolen life, JC Dugard was kidnapped as a young girl and she was kept in captivity for something like 18 years by her captor, um, raped constantly. She gave birth to two children, two girls in her time where she was kept in a shed, raped nearly every day by this man for, like I said, like 18 years. Her children were born when she was like 13 and 15. And I read this book. She eventually escapes and returns to her family. And it was stunning. And it changed my perspective on so many things, including abortion, that she, in that time in her captivity, and please read the book. I'm going to paraphrase, but I don't mean to put in any way words in her mouth. But in reading that book, she said that the lives that came from her suffering, from her rape, from the afflictions done against her were the very core of the purpose for her to stay alive, to keep fighting and to finally escape and return to her life on this side of that experience. The, the very seed of the evil done against her became the very purpose for her to move forward in her life. Now, that is just one. That is just but one example. And of course, she could have, and many do, look upon that experience in a very, very different way and seen it only as evil and no purpose and no good and no blessing. But she is a wonderful mom and loves those girls very, very much, despite the fact and the circumstances as to how they came to exist. Um, she sees them as the purpose of her life. Like, whoa, right? I mean, read that book if you just want to get a little bit of your mind blown. 
So I've already talked for a really long time. So I'm going to just wrap up these first or these last couple of things. But when I started to, you know, become, okay, I do believe that it is possible and maybe even likely that there is a God that does not immediately make you a Christian. That makes you a theist, right? Like where you're, okay, I now believe that there's a God. Um, that the next step then was to go, okay, if there is a God, and if he is maybe the God of the Bible, perhaps there is stuff in the Bible that will give me more evidence. Like it says, you will be given an abundance of knowledge. Again, in Matthew 13, verse 12, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. That was my heart was, I will, I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to know more. And so I went to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to understand not just in the Bible, in other books and in other places as well. And I'll give you some examples, but I was immediately shocked at how very documented the life of Jesus Christ is, or Jesus of Nazareth, let's say, if we're not honoring him as son of God, right out the gate, Jesus of Nazareth was a peasant, a nobody, a carpenter, a an insignificant person. He was not a military general. He did not win a war or fight in a war or lead a giant revolution. He should not be recorded in history. At the time that he was alive, people of his social standing absolutely were not documented in any way, largely. I mean, I there's there is no reason that someone as insignificant in the the world's eyes, right? If you don't believe he's the son of God, then why is he so significant? Our calendar is based off his having been born, right? A book by John, uh, John, John Ortberg, John, Joel, Joel Ortberg. I should know this. He's like a prolific Christian writer. Uh, it's called, Who is This Man? I will link it in the show notes here. That was a very interesting look at the man of Jesus of Nazareth, let's take away the assumption he is the son of God. Let's just look at this historical man. Why is he so documented? How much influence did he actually have on all of these mechanisms? Not just on the calendar, which is obvious, or on our holidays, as we hear at the end here talking about Christmas, but on colleges. What was his influence on education? What was his influence on morality? What was his influence on I mean, he was a teacher, right? That's his influence on education, on hospitals and healing. And how did he affect all of these areas that are still a part of our life today, 2000 years after he died, if he was just a regular Joe Schmo, nobody that walked the earth. That was really interesting and made me want to understand more. Even if you are an atheistic historian, you're not going to argue that Jesus was not, that he didn't exist. And that the man that is historically documented as Jesus of Nazareth is the man that other people believe is the son of God, right? It's just interesting that he was so documented and has all this. Then you bring in the element of prophecy. And this is where people shrink away. Even Christians shrink away from the prophetic books in the Bible. But I feel like the prophetic books are such a key piece to really bringing forth the irrefutable evidence of this man fulfilling a whole lot of, uh, 
of boxes, right? Checking a whole lot of boxes that he could not have checked in his own strength. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to go into this in a second, but just to set the stage for someone who does not know scripture, there are a lot of prophetic books, which are basically prophets sent by God recording their visions or what they've been told by God or the messages they've received from God. They record them in these various books. There's quite a lot of, of prophet, prophetic books. There's major prophets and minor prophets, but all of these prophets, some of them knew of each other. Some of them did not. These prophets wrote their own words of God they, you know, they uh, wrote them down and had their books of these visions of God over the course of hundreds of years, right? Dozens of different authors are collecting these visions from God or messages from God and documenting and putting them down. And we have the great perspective sitting in 2022 of the great majority of all of these prophetic messages being history to us, okay? So this is the difference. This is where prophecy really separates itself from fortune telling, which is, I, I was like the girl that was like, well, prophets are just like fortune tellers or psychics or whatever. False. Prophets, especially from our perspective, are people who said XYZ is going to happen and then XYZ happened, okay? So you're a prophet because you've been proven right by you said it was going to happen and then it did in fact happen. We have that blessing. The people who were hearing from the prophets of God at the time that they were speaking the message from God, they did not always see the message from that prophet come to pass in their life. So they they could and did reject what the prophet said is true and say, I don't believe that's from God. I don't even believe God's real. I don't even believe you. I think you're making it up. Except for we don't get to do that because what the prophets wrote down thousands of years ago now to us has come to pass. So specifically in certain ways, like there are prophets that speak the actual names of rulers that would then come to be and they, the, not only would they have that name, but they would do the things that that prophet said they would do. I mean, it is really wild when you get in the prophet, prophetic books and start to dig through it. But another great book that I want to just quote from here is uh, the book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner. I'm just going to read from my own book, which quotes his book. He's a mathematician, Peter Stoner. He says the odds of one man fulfilling eight of the individual prophecies written about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament would be one in, and I cannot say this number. I don't even know what this number is. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. A one and 17 zeros after it. That is the odds of an one individual. Let me just read that again. The odds of one man fulfilling eight of the individual prophecies written about the coming Messiah. That's really unlikely. It's true. I will give you this, that some of these prophecies, a man could fulfill himself if he was aware that those prophecies existed in his life. Things like the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay. If I were Jesus and I were trying to position myself so that people thought I was the Messiah and I knew that that had been prophesied about the Messiah, I could go ahead and get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem to check that box myself. That's what I mean. There are certain prophecies that yes, Jesus could have fulfilled in his own strength. Should he be attempting to position himself as the Messiah? But things like 
where he was born, who would give birth to him, details about how he would die and the things that would happen after his his death, where he'd be buried. These are not things that one can control, especially not at that time, right? To further illustrate his point, Stoner says, and now I'm quoting directly from his book, if we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they will cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly. Blindfold a man and tell him that he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? The same chance that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing that they just wrote in their own wisdom. Now, these prophecies were either given by the inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be. They just made them up. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any one man, but they all came true in Christ. This means that the fulfillment of just eight prophecies alone proves, mathematically proves, that God inspired the writing of those prophecies to a definitiveness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power of being absolute. That's really compelling from a mathematical standpoint when you pull out all of the prophecies that Christ perfectly fulfilled, and he's talking about just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled. This is this is what it would look like to, to put a, a picture, right? The silver dollar covering the state of Texas two feet deep and picking the right quarter. That's what we're talking about, the chances mathematically of, of this being true all in Christ Jesus. So I go on to say, this is my book, Go ahead and look up this 10 to the 17th power thing if you're not sure just how much the odds are stacked in the favor of Christ being exactly who he said he was. That was tremendously compelling to me. But if you're not convinced, don't worry, it goes even further. Did you know that the likelihood of one man, any man, not just Jesus, but any man, fulfilling 48 of the prophecies written down in the Old Testament is mathematically impossible? It's not improbable. It's mathematically impossible. Stoner suggests the likelihood is a number I don't even know how to write. It's a one with 157 zeros next to it. Very, very unlikely that one man would fulfill 48 prophecies. It is very unlikely that Jesus randomly met the mark and fulfilled all of these prophecies. Actually, it's mathematically impossible that that would be the case. And remember, in in the sense of it being random. And remember, these prophecies were written before he was ever born by several different people over hundreds of years. Mathematically impossible really doesn't even capture it, but wait, there's more. The Bible doesn't offer only eight prophecies or even 48 prophecies perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There are over 300 individual and specific prophecies fulfilled in this Bible about Jesus Christ. That is really compelling evidence. And when we look at that, we go, yeah, God is doing a work of revelation. He is putting it very clearly out there for those of us who want to look deeper and for those of us who want to listen to what has been written and what has been prophesied and what has been foretold and what has been documented. So that's the last piece of this. What is the accuracy of this Bible? Because if the prophets wrote it down wrong or if it was made up later or what have you, and again, 
none of this can be proven where there's no room for debate. There will always be room for debate. There will always be with anything, right? But the Bible is a history book, the same as any other history book. I never have thought that what I know about the Egyptian way of life and hieroglyphics and the pyramids and how they built the pyramids, I've never even thought that that could have been completely contrived and not true because we're we're basing what we know about this time in the history books with the Egyptians from their own documents, from people's journals, from in some cases photographs, not as far back as the Egyptians. Um, documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you guys, if you are truly going down this road of trying to prove it to yourself, again, that God is real, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 70s, I feel like, before we had the Dead Sea Scrolls, I could totally buy that the Bible's accuracy is in question the historical accuracy of the scripture and it as an accurate historical document before the seventies, I could argue, yep, there's a big leap of faith there. But since we have discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and we have the compelling historical evidence of the scriptures actually being historically accurate, it gives you a lot more confidence that what you're reading here in is history, is written down history, right? Just like any other history book. And the Bible and scriptures and the Dead Sea Scrolls are far more uh, cross-referenced and historically provable and accurate than most other texts that we base a lot of our understanding of history on, right? That is Again, if you go into like the case for Christ or some of Lee Strobel's work or or offshoot off of that or Joel, uh, Joel Ortberg, I think it is Joel Ortberg, either way, you're going to be really excited. You're just going to like my mind gets blown when I go down, how, you know, the history of the Bible and how it was found and pieced together and, and how accurate is it so much more accurate than things that we take for granted as being historical that we would never question. But then you think in terms of if I were a jury, if I were in a jury trial and I'm I'm listening and hearing evidence and testimony given about anything, what is one of the most compelling evidences? It is firsthand account, right? A, a eyewitness testimony. If somebody, if multiple people got on a stand and you were in the jury and they said, I saw this thing happen, and then the next guy comes up and says, Nope, exactly, I saw this and this and this. Then the next guy, this, 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 and then the next guy, this, 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 this. And they're willing to say, not just say it. And this is the gospels I'm speaking of, right? Not just say that I saw this, but they were willing to die for that testimony. They were willing and were put to death for their testimony of Christ, for their eyewitness testimony. I would sooner die than tell you I'm lying. I will, I will fully admit that doesn't mean they weren't lying, but it's not just one guy. It's not just two guys. It's not just three guys. There are four gospels, but there are also hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ. And as we are collecting an account of an event in history, let's jump to World War II and the, and the Nazi era. As we are collecting the uh, account, it's happening kind of we're collecting the information kind of as it's happening, but generally it's happening after it's over. Then we're, we're collecting the information, right? It wasn't during the world because there is the, uh, the fog of war that is happening where people don't actually know when you're in 
uh, England, you don't necessarily know for sure that the Auschwitz is a place, you know, that that is actually happening. You might hear rumors, you might even have heard somebody who saw it maybe, but there is some fog as it's happening. But in the years after World War II, not only were we able to hear from the survivors of Nazi Germany, not only were we able to hear from them, but we were also able to hear from Nazi soldiers. We were able to hear from high up command as they gave a defense of their actions, not just admit their wrongdoing, but given a defense, tell the other side of the story. We were able to, in the years after World War II up to today, cross-reference, collect journals, collect firsthand accounts, look at photographs, look at, um, hear stories. And some of those stories were told, okay, so-and-so died, but before she died, she told all of this information to Sarah. So now we have a second account coming from Sarah. So it's once removed. True, that's not a first-hand account. It's a second-hand account, but we have tons of those. We have tons of the first-hand account. We have the journals, which is a first-hand account. A journal is a first-hand account. A gospel is a firsthand account, right? As you have, we're, we're how many years out from World War II in Nazi Germany? We are soon going to enter into a generation where there are no more survivors from that era, where no one is alive on earth to testify the truth or the falseness of whatever is coming out as a historical understanding of that time period. But we've had all of these years to corroborate to collect information, to have both sides of the story fully documented. And now we have this collection of data that is our history. This is how we know that happened. This is how we know the experiences of the people who were there. This is all we have, as a matter of fact, to even say it happened or to even give any validity to this time in history after those people are all gone. That's what history is, is a collection of the people who lived it that will live on after they're gone. That is the exact thing that the New Testament is, right? And, and the Old Testament for that, in that sense. So when I started to dig into the history of the Bible and the proof of God, the proof of Jesus in my own mind, I did feel like there was a very human wisdom place I could come to, but I also still go back to um, that what the scripture tells us from the get that heart, hearts are hardened to this being revealed. And if we don't have ears to hear, if we don't have a heart to know, then we won't, God will not force it. There will not be a revelation against our will. That's not true because Paul was revealed against his will. Basically, Jesus revealed himself when Paul was not seeking it. So I'll even go back and say, yeah, God can do whatever he wants. Holy spirit can reveal it to you. Even if you have the hardest heart. Because Paul really did have such a hard heart, didn't he? So that's that's a lot. That is a lot. And I wanted to just walk through that because um, I kind of opened the door for that in my last podcast. And I haven't talked in depth about that on this podcast. So hopefully that was interesting and you liked it. And I hope y'all have a merry, merry, merry Christmas. I do hope to put out one more podcast between then and now, but you just never know because it is a crazy time of year. Love y'all. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate this podcast and tell all your friends. And of course, catch me over at gainingmyperspective.com. Father God, I just pray for softened hearts, for softened hearts, Lord, for the revelation of Holy Spirit to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see what you would show them and that they would gain 
understanding, and an abundance of knowledge in the ways that their heart desires and needs. Lord, I just pray these things because I know that you are a giver and you are a good father and you desire to be known. You are not hiding. You are not far off. You are so near. And I just pray for this revelation as we celebrate the birth of Christ. I ask all this in his precious name. Amen.